Does anybody uh, here uh, happen to know the number one movie worldwide of 2019? It may come as a shock to you that it is not from the Marvel or DC universes. I'd actually never heard of it. It's true, the movie has only grossed about $6 million in the U.S., which by any standard would be considered a failure. Most top-selling uh, U.S. releases make that in its first few hours. This movie was released on February 5th. Oh, and, and by the way, it is not a Hollywood film at all. It was made in China and has grossed about almost 700 million, that's pushing a billion, there. By any standard, that is a success. It is currently the second highest non-English grossing film of all time. It will soon be first. The movie? The Wandering Earth. How many of you have seen it? Well, there you go. The storyline? Quite interesting. Apparently, the story takes place in the distant future. The, the sun has become a giant red, a red star on its way to death. So in order to survive, the earth, the earth and its inhabitants, it, human population must relocate. Again, notice, not just people, the planet. So the world comes together to build giant engines, thrusters on fusion power across the earth to strategically placed to, to guide the planet out of its current solar system to relocate to nearby to the nearby Alpha Centauri system. Of course, leaving the, um, uh, the sun puts the earth in a deep freeze, but no problem. Underground um, cities have been built close to those giant engines to help keep them warm. The storyline actually centers around the intentional um, uh, Earth's very close path to Jupiter, which they will use as a slingshot to propel them on their way to their new solar system. There's more. I'll let you watch it if you enjoy reading subtitles. Now, to be clear, I have not seen the movie, nor am I recommending it. That just gets me into trouble. Apparently, you don't like assassin movies where the bad people die. I do. But what I found interesting is that there are both differences, a difference, a significant difference and a similarity between this movie and Hollywood. You see, while the Marvel and DC comics have some superhuman or non-human hero or heroes who are saving the earth and the human race, this one has a group of human heroes who, who saved the planet? No Superman or Aquaman, no Iron Man or Captain America, no Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel with amazing superpowers. Just humans coming together, saving the earth. And you see, as I understand it, there is a hopeful end to the movie. As for a similarity, that's what is similar with Hollywood. Let's save the earth from its inevitable destruction. I mean, not just the people, but like Iowa. Can they do it? How about in real life? Can we? Can Republicans? <laughs> Democrats? Will the Green New Deal do it? Capitalism? Socialism? 
The world coming together in some super new universal government. Will that work? Will, will we destroy ourselves or can we save ourselves? Let, let me ask it this way. Will there be a savior to save us from ourselves? Now, let me take a quick aside. As I wrote those particular paragraphs, that introduction on Friday, it occurred to me that some would likely link the story of Christianity, the story of saving humanity with all those other fairy tales. I mean, what's the difference anyway between Captain America and Jesus? All just hope-filled imaginations seeking a Savior. What's, what's the difference? I would suggest to you that the story of Jesus, God in the flesh, to save us from ourselves, is the true hero story. You see, in our heart of hearts, we know that this is not all that there is. Humanity knows there is something better, someone greater. From where does that universal understanding come? God has placed eternity in our hearts. We know something else awaits. In fact, all creation points to the reality of God. But per Romans chapter 1, we've taken the revelation of the true God as seen in creation in the universe. All you've got to do is walk out and look up. We've taken all of that revelation as seen ultimately in God's self-revelation in His Son, and we've taken all of that and, well, we've suppressed it. We don't like it because we want to be the heroes of our own stories. We want to be the center of our universes. What little boy or little girl, thank you, Captain uh, Marvel, doesn't run around with a cape or a lightsaber. And in the story of Christianity, well, we're the bad guys. So we've suppressed the reality of the true and the living God. We have recreated him, made him in our own image so that we can save ourselves. But the truth of Christianity is that we, that, that we have been made in God's image, not he in ours. Not physically, but morally, spiritually, relationally. And in our rebellion, we ruined that image. But... God sent His own Son in our physical image, taking on the form of a man, to save us from ourselves. And so all those, think of it, all of those stories, those myths, those legends, those false religions, those, those movies, all, all springing from the truth of God, but warped, reimagined, perverted attempts to recreate God into a more palatable, acceptable, likable man-made image. To be clear, all of those stories find their source in our collective innate understanding of God with whom we have to do and the inevitable judgment to come. We know it's coming 
That's why we build giant thrusters to save the planet. Just as we know that there is a God, just as we know that this is not all there is, we also know that there is an end to which we are headed. And all of the myths and all of the movies try desperately to rewrite the ending. It won't work. We've been in our study of Hebrews since January of last year, 15 months. I hope you have found it as meaningful and challenging as I, the author, both encouraging and warning us to remain faithful, to persevere in the Christian faith to the end to which we are headed. Now, again, there have been lots of warnings. I have suggested, if you've been listening, that there are five Severe warnings in this book. We've looked at the first four, bringing us to the fifth today. And guess what? Captain America, Captain Marvel, and even China will not save this world from its inevitable judgment, try as they might. There is a hopeful end, but not because we save ourselves and our planet. To be clear, this earth will be shaken to its core. But there is a hopeful end found only in Jesus. Allow me to review. We know the author is writing to Jewish believers who were suffering as a result of their faith in Jesus. They were considering returning to Judaism, a much more acceptable and respectable religion. So our author writes to both encourage and warn them. His his encouragement has come like this. Jesus is better. He's better than Judaism. He's better because he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. I mean, Joshua, he's better than Aaron and the Levitical system of sacrifices. He's better than the law. He's better than the old covenant. In fact, he's better because he is the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant. All of it pointed to him and his perfect sacrifice, which he would bring in the shedding of his own blood. Conversely, the warnings have been like this. The first one found in chapter 2, he challenges readers to pay attention to what they had heard. Don't miss that word. To To pay attention to what they'd heard. So so that they would not drift. See, if those under the old covenant drifted and received a just penalty for their disobedience, how will we under the new covenant escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will we? We won't. And the second warning found in chapters 3 and 4, he doesn't want uh, found in any one of them an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away, that drifts from the living God. Instead, he said, encourage one another day after day so that no one will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For, for, for we have become partakers of Christ, listen, if we hold fast to the end. For, for which we're headed. The third one is found in chapters 5 and 6. He scolds them for having remained spiritually immature. By this time, they ought to be feasting on meat. They're still drinking the milk of the word. By this time, they ought to be teachers, but they need someone to teach them the elementary or the basic principles of the Christian faith. And to remain in spiritual immaturity, to not grow, listen carefully to me. To just pray a little prayer, 
I'm in like Flynn. In like Flynn, whatever that saying is, whatever it even means. I'm in. It's to put yourself at risk. The warning culminated in chapter 6 with what some consider to be the most severe warning in the book, perhaps the New Testament. There he says, don't walk away, don't quit. If you do, there will be no returning to repentance. Walk away at your own eternal peril. Which brought us to the fourth warning, perhaps as severe, some suggest even worse, because not only does it talk about the horrible sin of apostasy that is walking away, but he talks about the terrible consequences for doing doing so. That's fine in chapter 10. He started the warning with three encouragements. He sprinkles encouragements throughout this book. Let us draw near to God. Can do that under the old covenant. We can in the new. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us encourage one another in the process. 4 verse 26. If we don't, if we walk away, if we apostatize, there remains only certain fearful judgment. No escape. Which brings us to the text this morning. As you can see from the screen, some suggest this warning started back in verse 18 from, from last week. You remember that. He, he, he contrasted the old and the new covenants. Mount Sinai and Mount, I hate to say Zion this morning, but I'll say Zion. You, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. The Israelites did. You, you haven't. They did, whether it was blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a whirlwind, the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words such as the Israelites begged that no further word, word be spoken to them. They didn't want to hear. Rather, you've come to a spiritual mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come there with, with, with myriads of angels in festive assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names have been enrolled in in heaven. You have come to God himself ominously, the judge of all. You've come to Jesus. You've come to the new covenant. You're able to come because of his sprinkled blood, which is speaks, there's that word, speaks better than the the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's blood cried out for divine judgment. Jesus' blood cries out for divine mercy. So don't miss, God spoke from the mountain in the Old Covenant, and he continued to speak through the blood of his Son in the New Covenant. The point is, listen to me this morning. God is speaking. The question is, are you listening? He's been speaking for 15 months. Are you listening? With as much passion as I can muster, I urge you to listen this morning. Look at the text with me. Hebrews 12, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. His voice shook the earth then, and now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, denotes or means the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things. There is no hope for this planet outside of Christ. 
so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Did you know that that is a quote right out of Deuteronomy chapter 4? Why do I point that out? Because we have somehow come to this idea that God, the God of the New Testament, he's just nicer. He's gentler. He's kind. He's more loving. God is, he's less angry and wrathful than he was in the old. God has somehow changed. And today we see him as somewhat of a Santa Claus figure. Ho, ho, ho. That's only half right. You see, he's holy, holy, holy. He's still a consuming fire, the author reminds us. That's the warning. See to it that you do not refuse to listen to the one who's speaking to you today. He's a consuming fire. As he normally does, the author warns, then follows with an encouragement which, which forms our outline. We'll see the fifth and final warning and followed by words of encouragement. Start with a warning. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. By the way, that takes us back to the very first warning in chapter 2. Some suggest in the second chapter where the first warning is and the second, the last chapter where the last warning is form kind of what's called a bookends or an inclusio. He uses actually some of the same language. Look at it. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. After all, God is speaking so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, remember we looked at that when the old covenant was given, it was attended by thousands upon thousands of angels and came to be understood that the old covenant was mediated by angels. If it proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After, it, after all, it was, at, it was at the first spoken through who? The Lord. He's speaking. He has revealed himself. We see this throughout the pages of Scripture. He is not silent. He has made himself known. So, so, so throughout these warnings, he's saying, make sure that you are listening. Now, clearly, as we saw last week, he spoke at Sinai. Verse 19 said that they heard the words. So awesome were those words, that event, that they begged God not to speak to them. Speak to Moses. Here the author refers to that awful event again in this warning. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth. Stop right there. Now, if you study this out, at first glance this appears a little bit confusing. Because when Moses recounts this, this event in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, we read these words a little bit later. And when you heard the voice... Heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire. You came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, okay, now the people are speaking. Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today, God speaks with a man. He's talking about Moses. God speaks to a man. Now, yet then why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, we'll die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire and as, as we have and lived? Go near Moses and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you and we will hear. Notice, we will hear and do it. 
They finished their speech, and Moses continues, the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the Lord speaking, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. That's a bit confusing, you see. When the people said, you talk to God, you tell us what he said, God heard that and said, you have done well. How? Well, they recognized God's holiness, and they said, here's what they said, we'll do it. Did they? What does this mean when Hebrews says, for if they did not escape when they refused him. He's not talking about not wanting to hear the voice of God. Remember that whole event was orchestrated to strike fear in the hearts of people. They were supposed to come away thinking, God's holy, we're not, we cannot approach him, mission accomplished. We can't listen. So, so how was it they refused? Well, one thing, it's one thing to listen and hear the voice of God or not listen and not hear the voice of God. It's an altogether different thing to say, we'll do it and not do it. So he's saying they disobeyed over and over. They refused him who warned on the earth. You see, when he spoke to them, he warned what would happen if they disobeyed. He spoke to them on the earth from Mount Sinai. They refused by refusing to do what he said. This brings us to the third warning found in, in chapter 3. Take care, brothers, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why is he saying this? For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Hold on, keep on holding on. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they, who's they, they provoked me, the Israelites, in the wilderness. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of what? Because of, diso- because of unbelief that led to disobedience. They provoked him over and over by their unbelieving disobedience. They heard it, and they did not believe they did not do, St- starting with a refusal to enter the land. Moses let them right up to the cusp of the land, sending the spies, nope, we're not going in. By their continued grumbling and complaining, oh, that we were back in, in, in Egypt with the leeks and, and garlic, and, and, and now, would that we were back in Judea. They're saying the same thing. And so as God had sworn they did not enter his rest. Their bodies fell in the wilderness. And that warns us. They heard, they refused, and they were judged. And so will you be. The author now argues from the lesser to the greater, one of his favorite methods, for if those did not escape when they refused, that is, disobeyed him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Most agree the one warning is God in both places, from Mount Sinai uh, uh, on earth and from heaven's throne room through his son and the writing of inspired scripture. If they, that is the Israelites under the old covenant, did not escape when God spoke, how much less will we escape if we refuse Jesus and the new covenant 
when God has spoken from heaven. He has warned us over and over in this book. So I was going through my notes this morning in my office. It occurred to me that that there are people who have been here for 15 months, some of you for 15 years, some of you longer, and, and, and you've heard it over and over, and you don't believe it. You're just punching the time clock. You, you're coming because mom and dad make you come. Your husband makes you come. Your wife makes you come. And you've heard it over and over. I want to say to you, it would be much better if you had never heard the gospel than to hear it and refuse to believe. I plead with you with everything that I have to believe the gospel because it will be awful having heard it and to turn from it. How had he warned? How has he warned us? He tells us in verses 26 and 27, he shook the earth then, then when he gave the old covenant. We read that in Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and it, and it smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. So add that, quaked violently to, to the blazing fire, the darkness and the gloom, all of that from last week. Terrifying. Uh, Are you trying to scare me? I am. Again, argues from the lesser to the greater. He has promised, saying, and he quotes Haggai 2, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Haggai is the second shortest book in the Bible, right behind Obadiah. It's one of the minor prophets, only two chapters long. The Lord there is encouraging um, the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian captivity through the prophet Haggai. And in chapter 2, this is very important, in chapter 2 we read these words. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. Look, I will shake all the nations and they will come with all the wealth of all the nations and I will fill this house with my glory. Do not miss the purpose of this shaking. It is judgment so that all of the nations, all governments and religions and peoples will know my glory. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's going to bring this whole thing to its knees. Our author quotes, verse 6, applies it to the second coming of Christ. Just as God shook the earth before, there is a day coming when I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And, and, And your paltry attempts at saving the planet will not work. Fleeing to Alpha Centauri will not work. I can find you there.
Most agree that this shaking has to do with judgment, purifying that which is impure. How does heaven then need to be shaken? It's part of the old order. It is that which will be shaken and made new. Further, what will this shaking or judging accomplish? It tells us in verse 27, which will help, again, my introduction makes sense. This expression, yet once more from Haggai, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, that is, judged, cleansed, removed, even destroyed. What is that, he tells us? All created things. He's talking about the shaking and cleansing and purifying of all, all of the universe, all that is created to include this earth, its nations, its powers, its authorities, all who have opposed him, they will be shaken. Several passages talk about this. First chapter of Hebrews, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. Supposed to point to your glory. We look at it and go, big deal. What else you got? Then they will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. He's talking about the universe. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. There's coming a time when this creation will be changed for the better. Peter talks about it, uh, uh, roaring... Um, uh, about the elements being burned up. This will simply pave the way for the new heaven and the new earth that we read about in Revelation 21 last week. It appears again in Isaiah 66. You, you see, our author is saying that all that can be shaken, that is this creation, will be shaken, and those things that cannot, not will not, but cannot be shaken will remain. What is that? Verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We are part of God's kingdom, a kingdom that is eternal and will remain. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Lots of discussion about that. Not going to get into that. Is this a remade earth? I don't know. I don't care. What I care is that something permanent remains. Bringing us to the encouragement, verses 28 and 29. Very quickly, our second point. Since we are part of a kingdom that is eternal, that will never be shaken, judged, destroyed, removed, let us do the following. First, let us show grace. This is so interesting. Let us show gratitude. Let us be thankful. Remember, he's writing to a group of people who were suffering, and he says, will you show some gratitude? How? Because this is not all there is, you see. We are part of the kingdom of God already, and we await the not yet fullness of the kingdom. It is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are part of that. We will remain. Listen to me. As sons and daughters of the living God, you see the number of verses that we sang this morning that talked about his kingship? That was intentional. For that, we can be thankful despite today's trials and struggles. The best is yet to come. Show gratitude by which we offer acceptable service. Interesting word. It can be translated service. Could be translated worship. Perhaps that's the way your Bible has it. How about this? In our gratitude, we show acceptable service, which ends up being worship to God. Think about that. Gratitude leads to acceptable service, which leads to worship. We've been given much. We, we, we give much, we serve, and that is an expression of worship. So if you are a, like the Old Testament people, like the Old Testament Israelites, if you're just grumbling and complaining, give me leeks and garlic. I'll take it in Alfredo sauce, thank you very much. Give me leeks and garlic. If you are grumbling and complaining, you are not worshiping. Further, that worship is characterized by humble reverence and awe. Why? Because he is 
The God that we serve is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because God has spoken with warning from this earth, and he is speaking now to you today with warning from heaven through his Son. And the result is thankfulness, yes, worship, service with reverence and awe, an overwhelming sense of who God is and what he has done. For our God is a consuming fire. Again, that's right out of Deuteronomy 4, Moses recounting Mount Sinai, comes on the heels of the giving of the law, that terrifying event, and Moses actually says in the context, don't have any gods, no graven images before God, the true and the living God. For our God is a jealous God, he is a consuming fire. We talked about this last week, so I won't belabor it. (coughs) He will not tolerate idolatry. We've come to Mount Zion. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, who will one day shake the heavens and the earth. We have become partakers of of Christ, God's kingdom, which is unshakable. Show some gratitude. Worship, service with reverence and awe, for our God is a jealous God. He's a consuming fire. If they did not escape when they turned from him who warned from earth, how much less will we escape if we turn from him who is speaking from heaven through his son? We won't. That's the point. We serve the same God who is a consuming fire. That's the warning. Let me close very quickly with this illustration from one of my commentaries who tells the story of C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, and Aslan. Chronicles of Narnia are great for illustrations. It talks about Aslan the Great and Majestic Lion. At one point, one of the story's heroines, a girl named Jill, comes upon a stream of water. She has been lost. She is dying of thirst. But as she comes to the stream, she sees this lion sitting calmly before the water. Terrified, she stops dead in her tracks. The lion speaks. Are you listening? He speaks. If you are thirsty, come and drink. Dying of thirst, drawn by the gurgling of the stream, she tentatively steps forward. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I come? She meekly asks. I make no promise, said the lion. Drawn closer to the refreshing sounds of the water, she wonders aloud. Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up. Girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, he replies. Jill, recoiling, concludes, I I dare not come and drink. Then said the lion, then you will die of your thirst. Jill, taking another tentative step closer, says, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. But the lion responds, there is no other stream. (laughs) 